It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Babbage. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And this week, I'm getting into my time machine and traveling back 30 years. Let's see, where are we? Wouldn't you like to pass the ketchup to someone like me? <laughs> Please. Today, the Galactic Sentinels power up. For- well, what Allison should know. What, what do you is say internet about Allison? anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer right. network. Mm-hmm. The one that's becoming really big now. What do you mean? That's big. How does one? What do you write to it like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? Wait, this is 1994. We've not gone quite far enough. Ah, much better. We're now back to 1989, a year that saw the fall of the Berlin Wall the first episode of The Simpsons, and when Nintendo first released the Game Boy. The power and excitement of Nintendo, right in the palm of your hand. And there I am, swathed in a blanket, an empty mind holding on to a bottle. Yes, I'm a junior in college. However, on March 12, 1989, a seemingly innocuous internal memo for a project called Mesh would change history. This proposal concerns the management of general information about accelerators and experiments at CERN. It discusses the problems of loss of information about complex evolving systems and derives a solution based on a distributed hypertext system. Many of the discussions of the future at CERN and the LHC era end with the question, yes, but how will we ever keep track of such a large project? This proposal provides an answer to such questions. Firstly, I that memo was written by Tim Berners-Lee, a 33-year-old physicist working at CERN in Geneva. Project Mesh was approved, it was successful, and it was later renamed the World Wide Web. To celebrate the web's 30th anniversary, we chose not to focus on Sir Tim, as he's now called, whose story is fairly well known. Instead, we wanted to look at other people who are in the penumbra of the web. But first, we need to travel slightly further back in time to understand the basic difference between the web and the Internet. Janet Abate is a historian of science at Virginia Tech and the author of a classic book, Inventing the Internet. Well, the Internet is the infrastructure on which the web and everything else we do online runs. And the origins of the Internet were with the ARPANET, which was built in the U.S. starting in the late 60s by the Defense Department originally with an idea to support military researchers and eventually the military itself. But the key thing about the internet and where it gets its name from is that it's an interconnection of many networks. And so it's not really just a U.S. story because 
developed countries around the world were all developing their own networks, which eventually became connected to it. So I sometimes like to decenter the U.S. a bit and say that the Internet is kind of the world's coming together of their networking abilities. And what the U.S. mainly provided was the standards and the initial infrastructure to hang everything on. Okay, so if the network or the infrastructure itself is the Internet, then what was the origin of the World Wide Web? Well, you have to think back to what the Internet was like in the 80s. The infrastructure was established. There were high-speed connections around the United States and, and in other countries. But what could you do with it? You have to think back to a time when the Internet was text only for most people. There weren't graphic interfaces. There wasn't any search. You couldn't find things there. And so if you didn't already have a specific place you wanted to connect to and a specific thing in mind, there wasn't that much that you could do with it. And so in a way, it was sort of an infrastructure waiting to kind of take fire and have people want to use it. People often get confused between the term Internet and World Wide Web. And one person who knows all about this confusion is Vince Cerf, who wrote some of the early networking protocols and is considered one of the fathers of the Internet. I asked him to clear up the confusion. People see of the Internet is, in fact, through the lens of the World Wide Web, but they are, in fact, distinct and separate things. The Internet is the underlying networking infrastructure that links billions of computers all around the world. The World Wide Web is an application that sits on top of the basic Internet infrastructure. So the Internet infrastructure is realized primarily by a pair of protocols called TCPIP. And the uh, World Wide Web is realized by a protocol called HTTP, and it interprets documents that are written in the form of HTML. Don't worry about the, uh, the alphabet soup. The two are simply layered on top of each other, and what you experience of the Internet, for the most part, is through the World Wide Web. The early years of the Internet had its limitations. There was the technical problem of how do you find anything on the Internet if you don't already know exactly where it is. And the web provided some ways for doing that. There was the issue of what kind of information you could have. And in particular, graphical information was not really supported. And that really made the Internet come alive when the web provided the structure for that. And then there was the idea of linking information, which, of course, Ted Nelson with hypertext had come up with this idea which is what makes it a web and not just a sort of encyclopedia or a kind of one-way information thing. And it made it a more democratized structure that people could make their own links. They didn't have to go through a gatekeeper. And that's what the web really was. It was a web of human beings making these links, um, which was extremely powerful. Ted Nelson, a recognizable name among the geeks, his vision was one of the inspirations behind the web. He was kind of a countercultural figure in computing. Um, and so he had a, a philosophy of bringing computers to the people, demystifying them, which was a kind of interesting. There's an interesting tension in the web where there's these people who want to popularize it and make it a very bottom up thing. And then there's people who want to commercialize it and make it a more top down thing. But he was definitely a bottom up person. And uh, one of his inventions was the idea that you could have text or pages or whatever it might be linked to other things um, and sort of create your own map through information. And Tim Berners-Lee used that idea for the web, of course, to, to make the hyperlinks that connect web pages. 
Ted lives on a houseboat in Sausalito, California, across the bay from San Francisco. He coined the term hypertext, the HT in HTTP, Hypertext Transfer Protocol. I asked him his recollections of the early days of computer networking in the 1960s. First of all, I was a filmmaker, and I had unique powers of visualization. And as a generalist intellectual, I was very fast at extrapolation and combinability of ideas, very quick at figuring out ideas and seeing their consequences. So in 1960, I took a computer course and uh, found that the computer was not <laughs> it was not a, uh, an engineering device, it was not a mathematical machine, it was an all-purpose machine, and they'd been hiding this from the public. And you could put interactive screens on it. And I said, holy smoke, the interactive screen will be the new home of the human race. Was I wrong? Now we have desktop computers, laptop computers, pads, and everyone is on their interactive screen for hours a day. Remember, this is decades before the memo by Tim Berners-Lee and before the first web browser even existed. How can we improve this? How can we extend this process to make... It's easier to reassemble those connections, to see the big picture. And over the years, my proposed extension, which I illustrated in 1972, is to have parallel pages with visible connections between portions. First I thought of jump links, but then the parallel page idea became clear to me. And the parallel pages was the simplest reduction that both extended existing sequential texts and yet allowed new connections in a non-threatening way that did not explode combinatorially. But his project called Xanadu was still under development when Tim Berners-Lee at CERN released the World Wide Web onto the Internet. So why didn't Ted's vision and the aptly named Xanadu catch on? So I got together a team of very brilliant people in 1979. We designed our version of the hypertext of the future with visible connections. We worked on that, particularly my colleague Roger Gregory is continually working on that, and we got backing from Autodesk in 1988, and then we screwed up. We would have had a system out by the fall of 1988 before Berners-Lee even proposed the web, but instead the web, which is a dumbed-down of the hypertext idea as far as I'm concerned, came out and obliterated the possibilities we were trying to go forward with. So since that time, I've been like Orson Welles, unsupported, dragging decades-long projects behind me and reaching in all directions. But I've carried on, and there's a new version which I'm continuing to work on with Edward Betts in England. And so I persist because it's what I believe in even though it is so hard to explain to people who have not visually seen the structure. One of the shortcomings of Xanadu is that it's hard to explain how it works. Ted Nelson himself is adamant that it can only be understood visually. So for those who wish to learn more, watch his video guide by searching for Xanadu Basics 1A. The interconnectivity among online documents that was made possible by the web and hyperlinks is only one element. It wasn't until the invention of the web browser that the web took off. Janet Abate again. Well, of course, there's Mark Andreessen created Mosaic at the NCSA and then Netscape. And that's another interesting story because he's at the National Center for Supercomputer Applications. And they were sort of 
someone with a lot of infrastructure looking for something to do with it because supercomputers were beginning to kind of go out of vogue and they wondered what's our existential purpose. And Mark Andreessen found out about the web and decided to build a better web browser there at NCSA, which was Mosaic in 1993, that became Netscape. And that hugely popularized the web. So it's possible someone else would have done this, or it's possible that the web would have been another flash in the pan until somebody else came up with some interface that would be popular. But he was the one who did that, and it's an important step to get from having something really cool to having something really cool that millions of people are going to use. The web browser, along with the popularization of the PC, enabled the web to flourish. Bill Gates's famous vision of a computer on every desk, Steve Jobs's vision of a computer in every pocket. It is on the shoulders of these giants that today's web innovators stand. I did get a chance once to visit the room in CERN where the web was born, and it felt like uh, visiting Mecca. That's Matt Mullenweg, one of the co-founders of WordPress, and he brings us to where the web is today. So WordPress is a content management system, is the, the unfun name for it. But we basically exist to democratize publishing. We want to give people, whether they're large or small, access to the best tools in the world to reach everyone. And actually, today is an auspicious day. The day we're recording this, WordPress actually just reached 33.3% all websites. So I can now say we power a third. The number two in the market is only at 2.2%. So we have uh, a lot of market share in terms of about being about 10 times bigger than the number two. So the web that we know is largely powered by WordPress. We're working on that. And WordPress is open source, which means much like the Wikipedia or something like that, it belongs just as much to you as it does to me. So people can have full control and agency and autonomy over how they run and choose to publish online, in contrast to the sort of social media services that make you fit into their boxes so they can sell advertising. Like the early web pioneers, Matt sees open approaches and data sharing as fundamental to the network's growth and future. There's the next place for us to time travel to, the future. I'm Peter Schwartz, currently the Senior Vice President for Strategic Planning of Salesforce, what's known as the Chief Future Officer. Peter is a futurist and the world's foremost thinker in long-term scenario planning. I've been online since 1972. So I was at Stanford Research Institute, which was node number two of the ARPANET. He's forecasted the future for governments, huge corporations, and even the Vatican. Tom Cruise came to uh, Steven Spielberg uh, with the idea of making a movie out of a Philip K. Dick short story. The problem was oh, and he's also been called to work on Hollywood movies. For example, he was the ringleader for imagining the world of 2054 for Steven Spielberg's film Minority Report. I think basically two really big things, and both have stuck. One was, of course, the computer interface, right, of gesture control. And now in the world of the iPad and the smartphone and so on, we're all used to using that. And that was the first time anybody saw that on screen. And the second thing was the environment that knows you. Everywhere you go, there's enough sensors that knows who you are. In this case, it was retinal scans. Now it's facial recognition, advertisements. That Having made shrewd predictions for Steven Spielberg and being present at the creation of the Internet, perhaps he can help us imagine what the web of the future might be like. First of all, I think it'll be universal, obviously, but it will look and feel rather different. Among the most important things is that a lot of the way we access it will be through voice. 
that is, will interact with information through voice, which is the most natural human interface. Within 30 years, obviously, we will have things that are the equivalent of what we think of as augmented reality today. So think about a contact lens in which inf all the information you want to see actually appears directly in your field of vision. So we won't have nearly as many screens. We won't have nearly as many physical devices that appear to be in our hands and on our bodies because all the necessary technology will actually be in the environment. So basically, the person will have universal access to all the information that they want anytime, anywhere, which is where we are close to today, but it will be directly in their field of vision. So many social functions will be carried out uh, in that way, work, education, politics, retail, all of those things will be essentially aspatial. That is, you'll be able to do them anywhere, anytime. So all that knowledge is already being encoded and made available. And so I think about it 30 years from now as a global big brain, right? Uh, and we all have access to that big brain simultaneously, anywhere, anytime. 30 years on from Sir Tim Berners-Lee's original proposal, on which his boss wrote, quote, vague but exciting, Sir Tim has written a letter to urge the web community to make the web of the future even better. Against a backdrop of new stories about how the web is misused, it's understandable that many people feel afraid and unsure of if the web is really a force for good. But given how the web has changed in the last 30 years, it would be defeatist and unimaginative to assume that the web as we know it can't be changed for the better in the next 30 years. If we give up on building a better web now, then the web will not have failed us, we will have failed the web. Matt Mullenweg is the founder of WordPress, and he's one of those builders so entrenched in the future direction of the internet. It's going to look so much more bespoke than it does today. So today, the vast majority of content gets published through these I call them kind of cookie-cutter platforms. So a Twitter profile, a Facebook profile, an Instagram profile, these sorts of things, owned by a few companies whose business models are primarily selling their users to advertisers, access to their, their audience. So it's not really aligned with most of the people publishing on there who either want to sell to their own advertisers or probably have some other goal altogether. But they force you in these very narrow ways of interacting to essentially provide usability across profiles. So your Twitter profile and my Twitter profile work exactly the same. And you know what? And if you squint, can't really tell the difference. Like there's the avatar, maybe some color customization, but they really make you, they give you a very, very narrow lane to drive in. And that's also to make you more addressable and make it easier to run advertising against it. What makes the web cool is that ability to create like really bespoke, beautiful experiences. If you pick up magazines or books, they have different typography, they have different, they express the character of what the creator is trying to communicate using the entire language of visual communication. But you guys are WordPress. You've written the code that offers unlimited possibility to everyone, mm -hmm. but also default settings that almost everybody uses. <laughs> well, we need to make customization easier. And that's what I'll spend the next 15 years of my life doing, is making it so that, you know, if you're writing a story, you can make it fit whatever the story is. You know, we all see on like magazines like The Atavist, which is one of ours, or you know, these feature-length articles where like you're going, oh, I'll tell you my favorite one. Um, Paul Ford's article on code in Bloomberg. It was totally interactive, and you would learn to code through reading the article, and there's elements of it. When they build things like that right now, it's totally custom. 
you know, it's kind of one-offs that I would honestly hope it works in 20 years because it's going to require a lot of maintenance. If you can use a content management system that has the flexibility to incorporate those sorts of things, you can have the best of both worlds, the flexibility to express anything like that amazing code article, but written in a way where the data model can be forward compatible 20, 30, 40 years from now. This idea of fusing storytelling and computers affirms the vision of Ted Nelson at the very beginning of online networking. And it is a respectful doff of the cap that today's pioneers of the World Wide Web share the vision of those who helped create it. A baton has been passed. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. I'm Kenneth Kukier in London and back in good old 2019. This is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.